0: We are in Romans chapter 6, Romans chapter 6, so if you uh, don't have a Bible, grab your grab a blue Bible located underneath the seats around you, and I'm not sure what page it's on, I forgot to write that down, 942, 942. if you turn it to 942, you'll be at Romans 6, at least in that Bible. We're looking at verses 1 through 14, and... This is actually part, part three of a message we, we started a couple weeks ago. So, by the way, I, I, I encourage you guys to read through this text, verses 1 through 14. Do you remember that? And then I said just read to the end of the chapter. I want to keep encouraging you to do that. Repetitively reading through it, reading through it slowly, reading through it word by word, just reading through it until you become saturated with this text where it's, maybe you just start, we were talking about this at the Faithful Men's study this last week, it just becomes ingrained in your mind. You even notice yourself just kind of speaking these words. Maybe you've looked at it enough, you start to memorize it just by repetition, right? By the way, you know, how many of you remember songs uh, in your teen years? You still remember, if the song comes on, you still know the words to it. How many, you know what I'm talking about, that experience, right? Sometimes that's good and sometimes that's not so good. And that happens not because you dedicated yourself to memorizing the lyrics, it's because you heard it over and over and over and over again. The other thing I the other reason I think it happens is because when you have an emotional attachment sometimes to a song, it can kind of burn a deeper uh memory track in your brain. Well, what's what could be more emotional than reading the Word of God? Especially when, especially this chapter, especially the book of Romans. So let me encourage you on those things. Read it over and over again. It's going to help you as we come before the text and work our way through it in detail. So I'm going to review again. I'm going to keep doing this because I think it's important. In chapter one of Romans, we are introduced to the subject of what? Do you guys remember? What's the What's the title that we could place on beginning in chapter 1, extending through chapter 3? What's the word that I keep calling that section? Condemnation. Condemnation. Thank you. The Spirit has spoken twice this morning to us right here in the service. Um, (laughs) The Spirit's name is Thomas. (sighs) Okay, condemnation, right? That being the fact that all of humanity on their own, right? Stand condemned before God because, why, beloved? Why? Why do all stand condemned before God? Because there are none righteous. No, not one. Not one. According to God's word, beloved, any feelings of self-righteousness one might have are not, hear me, are not based on reality. Did you hear what I said? Any feelings of self-righteousness one might have are not based on reality. That is for Christians as well as non-Christians. As something happens weird. People become Christians, and then they get these feelings of self-righteousness. Right? They start thinking there's something before God. We are always nothing before God. We are only something before God because of Jesus Christ. Because of who he is and who we are, because we are in Christ through faith. Okay? So, what happens is the Christian begins to see the fruit of the Spirit at work in their life and they see these manifestations of real righteousness and they go, Wow, look at that. The mistake is to say, Now look at me. I'm really righteous. No, you're not. You're still the messed up sinner you were before, but God's changing you, God's transforming you, and it's not that you're becoming righteous, okay? It's not that so much. You're just, more and more of your life is manifesting the righteousness of Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit who dwells inside of you. You get that? I know I've said all that before, but it's so important. There is no self-righteousness, no real righteousness for a sinner, They are always saved by grace, living by grace, trusting in grace, relying on the grace of God and the righteousness of Jesus Christ. See, I get fired up about that stuff. None of that's even in the notes, but that's important, okay? In the eyes of God, beloved, based on his righteous standards, no sinner in and of themselves is right before God or acceptable to him. And every single person without exception, except for one, Jesus Christ. To one degree or another, every person, with the exception of Jesus Christ, is guilty before God and entirely worthy of God's holy wrath. Okay, That is condemnation. That is what we learn beginning in chapter 1 as we move through the the book of Romans. And remember, the book of Romans, if you want to just put one title on it, it's the gospel. This is the gospel. And it begins with some bad news. Condemnation. Condemnation. All right. Chapter three, though, beloved. Whoa, We are introduced there to the subject of what? Justification. Right, Those are sweet, sweet words. Humanity may be guilty before God. They may be condemned. They may deserve God's wrath. But any person and every person who turns to the Lord Jesus Christ and places their faith, their confidence, their trust in Him alone and the redemption and salvation that are found only in Him is at that very moment at that very moment, the moment that they exercise saving faith, at that very moment, they are forgiven and declared right with God. They are justified. They are justified. They are freely given a righteous status. Freely given. They didn't earn it. They couldn't earn it. They can't buy it. They can't make enough sacrifices for it. They're freely given this righteous status by God, solely because of Jesus Christ and what he has done. Did you hear me? Solely because of that. Not because of anything we have done, not because of anything God says, I look down the corridors of time and I see you're going to do some righteous things, so I'm going to give you this right. No! Solely because of what Jesus Christ has already done. Because of who he is, can God give us this righteous status when we place our faith in the living lord and savior justified consequently beloved the believing sinners condemnation remember that condemnation we talked about is permanently removed huh now one amen on that it might hey you might want to turn the sound up sound man because i don't think they just heard me when you place your faith in jesus christ you put your trust your hope in him and the salvation redemption that's found in him alone thank you very much just got a little more powerful there. That's amazing. Your condemnation, Mike, you, the condemnation you deserved rightly, it is permanently removed. Do You understand? You are granted a righteous status. Thank you. And you and I, who were once enemies of God, are now permanently reconciled Amen. to God. Amen is right. Beloved, I mean, I... That justified that section. Wow! Now here we are, Chapter Six of Romans, and we're introduced to the subject of sanctification. Right? Okay? Condemnation, justification. Here we go. This is all we're working through the gospel. Well, this is what the good news of Jesus Christ is: it is. sanctification. Here we go. And as I said before, justification and sanctification are inseparable components of salvation. Maybe you write that down, burn it into your head. They are inseparable components of salvation. They go together. They have an unbreakable chain. You sh- you you must not separate them or think that they're distinct. They are distinct, but that they can one can exist without the other is what I'm trying to say. That's impossible. If there is justification, there will be sanctification. Do you understand what I'm saying? You won't have one without the other. Let me let me say it this way. Sanctification is actually the proof of justification. Every person, here we go, every person imputed with, we've used that word, right, imputed with, or credited with, maybe that's another way to understand that, imputed with, or credited with the righteousness of God, and that's the Christian, the one who has placed their faith in Jesus. Every person imputed with, or credited with the righteousness of God, that's justification, will to one degree or another, in this life, in part or express the righteousness of God in their lives. That's sanctification. Do you hear what I said? So, on this hand, justification. I am imputed with the righteousness of God. God says, you are righteous before me. I'm granting that status to you because of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to impart righteousness to this one. They are going to convey it through their life. I'm going to transform them to the spirit that lives in them. They will begin to manifest the righteousness of God, that very status that they have in justification. It's going to look, you're you're going to see it. What's real here positionally will become real in their lives practically. Justification, sanctification. They go together. You got it? Do you have it? Thank you. Now, don't be afraid to release the amens. Don't be afraid, as long as you mean it. But don't be afraid to do that, okay? So here we go. Here's a simple definition, by the way, I've been using of sanctification. I found it in this book. You know, pop up that definition first. Sanctification. I'm going to show this again and again. Sanctification is a progressive work of God and man that makes us more and more free from sin and like Christ in our actual lives. Leave that up for a second, brother. That's that definition of sanctification. It's a good one. There's more that we could say about sanctification. There's different stages of sanctification. We We could say more, but that's just a good place to start, especially in light of Romans 6 and what we're talking about. We're talking about progressive sanctification, this ongoing work of God. Man cooperates with that work, okay? And what does it do? It makes us more and more free from sin and like Christ in our actual lives. Here's that book I keep referring to. It's called Systematic Theology by Wayne Grudem, and that's where I got that definition. He has a whole section here on sanctification as well as justification and glorification, our redemption, our salvation, all of these things. And I just wanted, if you want to come up and look at that, this would be a great a resource for you as a Christian to have and to work through, not just have, you know. Look, I have it, so now I'm, being, I'm, I'm learning. No, you're not. You've got to actually open it and read it. And the reason I love this book not because every single thing I'm totally in agreement with, or it, it, w- w- I would think the same exact things, but he he's good. He's good at breaking things down and simplifying them. I think that's so helpful. I try my hardest to do that on Sunday mornings, and and this guy's help very helpful in that regard. Okay, so uh, get this get this book if you don't have it. You see how thick this is. Yeah. You see how thick this is. You know, I was just thinking about. I mean, I don't want to go there, but listen, this is. <laughs> This is, I'm going to tell you, if you want to grow in Christ and you want to become more mature, you're going to have to commit yourself to reading a lot, okay? Not just the Word of God, but godly men, godly teachers that God has given to the church as a free gift to help us understand that very Word, to really get it, really begin to to plunge the depths and wonders and treasures of God's Word, because that's what this book is all about. It's just kind of going and saying, what are these things that the Word of God teaches us? You need to learn them, okay? Here it is. Good one. It's a good one. It's not the only one. It's a good one. All right. Yeah, Grudem. Grudem. It's only, um, it's only $500 on Amazon. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. You're like, you guys are crazy. I think uh, I got this. I think it was like $45 on Amazon. I can't afford that. Really? Okay. All right. You guys go out to dinner and a movie and blow $75. This is crazy, guys. Come on. Anyway, I'm not talking to all of you. I'm just saying I've heard things like this, so I wanted to express that. Now, listen. Uh, I think it might be helpful to our ongoing discussion, you can drop that uh, slide, I, I think this would be helpful to our ongoing discussion concerning sanctification. Paul tells the Christians in Philippi, he tells them, the Christians that are there, he says this, maybe you've heard this verse, work out your, your own salvation, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. All right, that's Philippians, if you want to know the passage, it's Philippians two twelve and 13 commenting on this verse in his study bible a study bible that we promote here because we think it's a good another good resource where you can look and you're saying what does this mean and there's notes here so we have it back there for you to purchase it's the macarthur john macarthur study bible in his study bible on this passage here's what he says i just want to go through it with you i think this will be helpful concerning that phrase work out your own salvation this is what john says the greek verb rendered what's rendered translated The Greek verb that is translated into our English Bibles, work out, it means to continually work to bring something to fulfillment or completion. Continually work to bring something to fulfillment or completion. It cannot refer to salvation by works. right? Paul's not saying, hey, work for your salvation. Hey, that's important, right? See the word by, for, there's a big difference. If he said work for your salvation, wow, that would mean that We'd have to do something to try to merit or earn or gain our salvation. He's saying, work it out. We clearly know that salvation is not by works, right? For by grace, you have been saved through faith, and it's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. It's a gift of God, not of works, Paul says, lest anyone should boast. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, right? That's so clear. So it's obviously not of works. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, you have this salvation. Now you need to bring it to fulfillment, to completion, And he's telling the Christians in Philippi to do that very thing. Where am I? Oh, okay. But it does refer to, I'm reading this now back, to the believers. This is what it refers to, the believers' responsibility for active pursuit of obedience in the process of, what's the word? Sanctification. Sanctification. Then he comments on those words, fear and trembling. This is the attitude with which Christians are to pursue their sanctification. We have a responsibility to pursue this, and it involves a healthy fear of offending God and a righteous awe and respect for Him. I mean, I could, we could spend, we could stop right there and we could preach. I mean, I could preach to you this fear and trembling idea, right? But it's not like I'm afraid. From moment to moment that I'm going to lose my salvation. I can because my salvation is based on Christ and what he has done. That's not the issue. That's not the kind of fear. But it is a healthy reverence and respect, a trembling fear, if you will, of this holy and righteous God that absolutely hates sin. And that means he hates it in my life. And so I come before him recognizing that, not wanting to offend this God who loves me so and who is holy and who is absolutely disgusted by the presence of sin in my lives. I don't want to offend that God. So I come before him in that way, and that means I'm going to work out my own salvation with fear and trembling. Then it says, listen, God who works in you. That phrase, God who works in you. Although the believer is responsible to work, that's their part, verse 12, the Lord actually produces the good works and spiritual fruit in the lives of the believers. How does he do that? this is accomplished because he works through us by his indwelling spirit. What's the indwelling spirit? The Holy Spirit, right? We have a triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit dwells, abides, lives inside of every believer, right? Hey, beloved, this is why some people have no Sanctification in their life. They don't have the Holy Spirit. Why, Jeremy? Why? Because they're not Christians. Every Christian has the Holy Spirit abiding within them. That is their power. Divine power. Okay? I don't know why I'm all worked up. I just am because uh, I work on this all week. So like, you know, I'm pouring 25 hours into this and then boom, I've got to unload somewhere. So it's on you. So here it is to will and to work. To will and to work. This is important. Any comments on this phrase? God, God energizes both the believer's desires and his actions. God does it. The Greek word for will indicates that he is not focusing on mere desires or whimsical emotions, but rather on the studied intent. What is that? Studied intent. That's like my deliberate Response, not a spontaneous kind of emotional thing, but it's deliberate, it's willful, studied intent to fulfill a planned purpose. That's the will. We are determining to live for God. Why? God's power makes His church willing to live godly lives. God's power does that. Sanctification. And why? Why? For His good pleasure. For his good pleasure. Listen. God wants Christians to do what satisfies him. Oh, I would love to spend just an hour here. Just an hour on that last phrase. Beloved, I am convinced, convinced that many people believe that God exists to satisfy them. But that is not the case. We exists to satisfy God. And listen, the truth of the matter is, is that we will never be truly satisfied living any other way. We won't. We won't. I tell you by the fact that that's what the word declares, I tell you by experience. You will never be satisfied living any other way. Living for yourself. Living for your own satisfaction. Living for the satisfaction of someone else. You will only be satisfied living for the satisfaction of God. And guess what? It is the saved, those who are true followers of Christ, who have been freed from sin and empowered by His dwelling Holy Spirit to do what? That! To live in a way that satisfies God that delights him. Do you understand? But God is so awesome. He's wired us for this, beloved. This is what we're supposed to do. So it's not like, oh, this is treasury. This is, so. Oh, this is slave breaking. Oh, to satisfy God. What a life of misery, right? Well, that's a little interesting effect right there. I'll have to remember that. What a life of misery. No. God has wired us in a way as Christians so that when we do live to satisfy him, we come alive. We come alive. And we really start to find that spring of living water just comes up, dwelling in us, pouring out, refreshing. Wow, this is what I was made to do. You see what I'm saying? It's like a hammer. I think I've used this purpose before. If I took a hammer and I took that hammer and tried to do other things like dig with it or write with it or, I don't know, make dinner with it, the hammer would be incredibly disappointed. I'm personifying the hammer. Think of the hammer as a person, okay? But when I take that hammer and I slam it into a nail, that hammer delights It glories and says, Yes, this is what I was made for. Watch out, nail. Here I come. You see what I'm saying? Okay, beloved, that's us. That's us, but we get we mess this up. We we go out and we want to dig in the yard and try to cook. You know what I'm saying? I'm trying to compare the two, but we were meant to to nail nails into the wall. No, not exactly, but to live for God. You understand what I'm saying? I'm making a comparison. To live for Him. (sighs) Chapter 6 of Romans helps us understand, beloved. It helps us understand the very foundation of our sanctification. The Christian, right? That's what we're talking about, our sanctification. The Christian has died to sin. Therefore, they cannot continue in it. Rather, they must and necessarily will, over time, become more and more free from sin and like Christ. Let's read the text. We're going to read verses 1 through 14 again. Romans 6, beginning in verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means! How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. We have an outline inside of your bulletin that you could use to follow along, and there you'll find this note that we're continuing to examine Paul's important question and his explanation and exhortation, and that's just an outline really of the passage. It kind of breaks up like, or that's how I'm breaking it up. And we're doing that, we're looking at those things so that we might understand the true foundation for our sanctification and experience ever-increasing victory over sin in our lives. That's what we're doing. Very simple, I think, I believe, just trying to work through the text. We've been looking at the question, we're still looking at it. We're still looking at it. This is part three in the question. And the specific question we've really been focusing on is the question in verse two. Last week, now I'm just going to pick up where we left off. Last week, I was again trying to drive home the point that the Christian's life should be different than those who have no relationship with Christ, those who are not saved. Is that, is that right or not? Yeah, biblically, that's right. The Christian's life should be different than those who are not saved. But I pointed out that all too often that doesn't appear to be the, the case. That actually is not the experience that we see. Well, why? Why is that? Why is it that those who claim to be Christians, sometimes their life looks just like that of the unsaved? And I'm speaking in sense of sin and righteousness. Well, as I said, that they could be a person claiming to be a Christian, but they're not. They're knockoff Christians. I use that terminology and when we looked at 1 John, knockoff Christians, right? Like there's knockoff purses. Right? You ladies know what I'm talking about. So you're always trying to avoid. Or maybe you don't. You buy them and then parade them around like they're the real deal. And that's fine, but they're not. But who cares, right? I mean, who cares if a purse is real or not? I don't care, you know, right? But when it comes to Christianity, it's a big deal. We're talking about life and death. If you're not the real deal, if you're a knockoff, you're not going to heaven. See what I'm saying? It's much more important. They may have deceived themselves into thinking that they, they are, but they're not. This is one of the reasons why we have this experience where we see people claiming to be Christians, but their life does not look different. It does not look sanctified in any way. I mean, there's just nothing there. Uh, Beyond that, they may have deceived themselves. Someone may have deceived them. A bad preacher may have not told them the truth or preached incorrectly from the Scriptures, suggesting that, hey, you can be saved and... Yeah, you know, you can live kind of any way you want, and maybe at some point in your life, you'll get to a special place where you make a real commitment to Jesus, and then your life will start to change. Uh, that's not what the scriptures teach. So, these people are under the impression that they can come to Christ, get saved, live however, and then they'll live just like they did before. And maybe someday, if they want to take the next leap, you know, go to the next level in their Christianity, go to the next advanced stage, maybe they'll come to that place and do that. But they know they're saved either way. That's just not the case. It's not true, right? So they may have been mistaught, and they may have been deceived, and so they're thinking they are. It's also possible that they are truly a Christian, right? I said that last week as well. It's possible they are, but that they have had bad teaching concerning their salvation. Someone hasn't taught them about sanctification, that the two go together, that one follows the other, that God has saved you for his glory, for his good purposes, to sanctify you, to set you apart for Him, to live for Him. And they didn't teach them that, and so they don't know that. Or they've and or they've made very use, very little use of the means of sanctification. What are the things that help us become more and more sanctified? Right. So if someone's not even teaching them about sanctification, then they certainly don't know about the means of sanctification. What are some of those things? The Word of God. The Word of God transforms us. It changes our thinking, which changes our heart, which changes our lives, our behavior, our attitudes, our goals, our purposes, right? So they neglect the Word of God. You're going to have a hard time growing in Christ. I mean, I'm going to say it's impossible. You cannot neglect the Word of God and expect that you're going to grow in Christ. Okay? So, Christian fellowship. That's another means of sanctification, being around brothers and sisters in Christ, maybe making a commitment to a local church, being involved in that church. Hey, that's a means of sanctification. You know, today, the churches, many of the churches are like, yeah, whatever, you come, go, do what you please, go to that church, go over there, come here on Sundays, go somewhere else on Tuesdays, do whatever you want. It's a smorgasbord, pick what you like. And then they never really make a a full-fledged commitment to any one local body and say, I'm here, and I'm committed to this fellowship. Now, let's get serious about my Christian faith. They don't do that. Of course, some of the churches are teaching it's not a big deal, you know, just whatever. It is a big deal. And that's why many people remain stagnant. Is that a a decent... That's okay, I can use that word. Stagnant in their sanctification. It's repressed. (sighs) But listen, even the Christian, even the Christian who is growing in Christ-likeness and is experiencing ever-increasing victory over sin in their lives can, as I said a few weeks ago, at times, did you hear what I said? At times, not as a way of life, but at times they can live in a way that is completely inconsistent with who they truly are in Jesus Christ. And what do I mean by that? (laughs) In other words, they're acting as if they have not died to sin. But to think or say that a Christian, a true child of God, could endlessly go on that way. Now listen, what do I mean by that? Okay, continuing or remaining in sin. All of these things. Having and showing no biblical repentance. Do you understand what I'm saying? Just in case you don't. If someone is committed to sexual immorality, that's their lifestyle. And they never show any biblical repentance. They're not turning from it. They're not doing anything to stop it. They live in it. Then they are demonstrating... First of all, they're demonstrating that... Possibly, they're not a Christian. Or... No. Listen. Think about it. If they will not repent... They continue in this lifestyle, unaffected. They just continue to go, whatever it is. There's no break. And yet they still claim to be a Christian. Beloved, the Bible doesn't support that. It doesn't support that. It doesn't give them any evidence for that. It doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't say those things. They show no real desire for holiness or righteousness, right? Still living in sin, It's just impossible for them to be a Christian. Why do you say that? Well, the Apostle John says it so clearly, and Paul is saying the same thing. But the Apostle John says, no one born of God. Listen, I'm I'm quoting scripture now. No one born of God, no true Christian. Someone born of God is a Christian, right? No true Christian makes a practice of sinning. They cannot keep on sinning. That's what the Apostle John says. And the one who does not, he adds to that, the one who does not practice righteousness is not of God. That's, by the way, you want to look that up? I would encourage you to. 1 John chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. I'd encourage you to read the whole letter. That's what the Bible says, beloved. Bad teaching has led people to just continue on claiming to be a Christian, living still in sin, not repenting, no desire for holiness in their life, no desire for righteousness. Listen, we're not saying Christians don't sin, right? We've said that a million times. That's not what the Bible, Christians still sin, but for them to live in sin without any repentance in their life and then still think they're Christians, that's not the case. They are deceiving themselves and or they have been, been deceived and I want to set the record straight. And I've been doing that over and over and over again because it's important. It would be a mistake beyond all mistakes to go on and thinking and saying you're a Christian when all the evidence points to the fact that you are not. Here's what would be better it'd be better for you to face reality, come to grips with the truth, and get saved for the first time. You hear what I'm saying? There is this, none of this, you know, I get saved, and then I got saved again, and I got saved again. This is how, I've seen this, right? So the person, they've never really been saved. I, I, I think that's the issue. But then every week, the pastor gets up, and he, he gives them, you know, boom, he just lays it on them. And they're like, oh, I'm so messed up. I know I'm so messed up. I'm just still living in sin, living in sin. So he says, come back and make a commitment. Walk down the aisle. Let's make another commitment. They make 50, 100 commitments in their life. They just, hey, I made another commitment to the Lord. But their life never changes. Why? I don't think they were ever believers. I don't think they ever really understood the gospel or they haven't really placed faith. They really haven't turned to Christ. All right. Was that strong enough? Thank you, Edgar and Tony, for that strong amen. Let's go back now to the rhetorical question in verse 2 and consider what it means to say that we died to sin. First, let me tell you something it does not mean. Now look, there's a balance here, right? So here I'm coming on strong, but I want to balance it. I want to balance it. I want to try to be faithful to what the word of God says. And there's a balance here. Sometimes we can go too far one way in what we're saying, but there's a balance. Let me tell you something that the phrase, we died to sin, does not mean. Let me start with that. We want to find out what it means, but what does it not mean? I'm going to show you. I'm going to tell you what it does not mean, and I'm going to show you from the text, okay? Okay. And I'm going to talk to you about it. It does not mean that Christians, because that's what Paul's talking about, Christians have died to sin. It does not mean that we are dead to the influence of sin or that we are immune to the temptation to sin or the enticement of sin. (laughs) I wish for all our sakes that that was true. Don't you? I mean, if you don't care, then that's a good indication you're not a Christian. Just so you know, I mean, if you don't care, you're like, oh, I don't, whatever. You know, sin, take it, leave it. That's a good indication the spirit of God's not dwelling in you. But experience, experience. Let's start with that. Experience tells us that that it cannot be what it means. Even listen, even the most sanctified the most matured Christians still feel the pull of sin in their lives and are still tempted to sin. And guess what? They do not always resist. They can still find themselves giving in to sin. Is that true, Edgar? Yeah. Yeah. So that's true. I wish it was true. Because the reason I'm saying this is because some have taught it that way. But that cannot be the case. Experientially, we know that's not the case. There's no sinless Christians. Boy, the church would be a lot better place. We'd stop beating up on each other and hurting each other all the time and stuff like that. And we'd get a lot done if we were sinless, but we're not. One day we will be, but we're not right now listen, here I'm going to look at the Scriptures. If the fact that we died to sin means that we are dead to the influence of sin, if that is what it means, it doesn't. But if that is what it means, then the verses that follow verse 2 don't make any sense. Like verse 12, where Paul says not to let sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Or in verse 13, he gives another exhortation. Do not present your members, that's, your, that's you, your body, to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. You see, why would it be necessary for Paul to tell us those things if we really are immune to the temptation of sin? It wouldn't be. Instead, these verses, warnings, exhortations make it clear that for every Christian, even though it is true that they have died to sin, succumbing or giving in to sin, succumbing or giving in to sin is still a real and present danger for them. You hear me? One that they will, one that they will continue to battle throughout their life. Pastor continues to battle. Some people get crazy ideas about pastors, like they've you know, they're sin-free people. You know, they've got it all figured out. Uh-uh, I don't. I don't. I'm, I'm fighting the same fight that you're fighting. I'm trusting in the same grace that you've got to be trusting, and I'm, having, I'm believing the same things the Bible says about me that you need to be believing in order to fight this battle with sin. Huh? I want to be done, you know what I'm saying? That's why you long for the age to come. This battle will be over. It will be done. But again, let me point out, let me point this out though, that the Christian will battle with sin. He will. She will. Whereas the non Christian doesn't because they are content to live in it and enslaved by it. Did you hear what I said? Do you see the distinctions I'm making? As one Christian writer said, just listen, our sin, for the Christian, our sin is a burden that afflicts us. It afflicts us rather than a pleasure that delights us. I want you to think about that. Is sin for you a pleasure that delights you? I'm not saying that there is no pleasure in sin. There can be. But I'm saying if you have the Spirit of God dwelling inside of you, oh my, will there be a war inside your heart. There'll be a war. You will not be able to continue in it. You won't. You might struggle with it. You might battle it. You might lose that battle and then win and then lose it again, but there'll be a battle. So what does it mean that we died to sin? Well, let me point out a few things. I said this earlier, but I want to say it again. Paul states that this is an event that has occurred or taken place in the past, okay? We died to sin. Thomas was talking about this. We're learning to uh, in our Bible study, to study the Scriptures properly. So he was talking about observation. He was talking about tenses. It's important to pay attention to the tenses of words. Past tense, present tense, future tense. He said a lot of other things. If you guys missed it, uh, you can get the notes uh, online. But uh, I want to encourage you to get plugged into this. It's very important. These are important things. I try to point them out when, when I'm going through a text. So when did it occur? It occurred in the past. Okay. Well, I'm sorry. We died to sin it occurred in the past. It's already a true thing, but when did that happen for us? It's something that's already taken place, but when did it happen for us? It happened, and we'll talk more about this, but it happened the moment that you were converted or became a Christian. Okay? So it's already true, but it's true of you when you become a Christian, a real Christian, a true Christian. Then for you, you have died to sin. It's already past tense. It's done. And again... I want to point that out because it's not future tense. So Paul's not saying we will die to sin. Okay? So that means it's something that's already happened. I'm not waiting for it to happen. Do you hear me? Okay, he's also not saying we should die to sin. He's not saying that here. He's not saying this is something you you need to work at. He's saying we died to it. He's not saying, now listen, get with the program, man. You want to be a good Christian? you got to work at dying to sin. Is that what the text says? Look back at it. Look at 6 verse 2. By no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you understand what I'm saying? Do you you get it? Okay. It's not future. It's not something we're supposed to do. It's already an accomplished fact. It's already happened. He's also not saying, listen, act or pretend like you're dead to sin even though it's not true. Huh? Right, because I mean... Listen, I know we're not dead to sin, but do your best to pretend you are. Play act. Do you understand what I'm saying? He didn't say that. This becomes very important as we begin to look through this. So, every Christian has died to sin. It is understanding and believing that truth that is really the key that unlocks the door to our sanctification, to us becoming more and more free from sin and like Christ in our lives. It's the key, man. Now, Paul says we died to sin. What does he mean we died? Look at this quickly. It's important to understand this. We've got to break this down a little bit. In the Bible, death is best viewed or understood as separation, as separation, as opposed to extinction, extinction, okay? So let me explain this. In the case of physical death, the person who dies does not cease to exist, right? Right? hello, Alright? We're Christians here. We believe different things, right? Because of the word of God. So the person doesn't cease to exist. Rather, their soul is separated from their body. That's physical death. Their soul is separated from their physical body. So likewise, when we speak of spiritual death, spiritual death, the soul or the spirit does not cease to exist. Rather, the soul is separated from or alienated from God. From God. Hopefully this, maybe you know this already, but if you don't, this will be helpful for you. An example of spiritual death is found in Ephesians 2.1. Ephesians 2.1, where Paul, writing to the Christians that were alive, living in Ephesus, states that they were, they were, past tense, dead in their trespasses and sins. What? What's he talking about? Spiritual death. That being the concept that their soul was separated or alienated from God as a result of their sin. Spiritual death. Saying something similar in Colossians chapter 2, verse 13, writing to the Christians that were alive in Colossae, Paul states that they were also dead, past tense, in their trespasses. But then he adds something. It's helpful. That God made them alive together with him. So listen. The souls of Christians are no longer alienated or separated from God, but now they are united with God. You want me to explain all the details of that? I, I'm, I can't. I'm just telling you this is, I don't, these are spiritual realities, spiritual truths. I accept them by faith. I don't know exactly all that looks like, but this is what is the case. And so how is that possible? How does the Christian who is spiritually dead become united with God? How does that happen? Well, the passage in Colossians goes on to tell us God has forgiven them all their trespasses, all of their sins, by canceling the record of debt that stood against them with its legal demands, and this he set aside by nailing it to the cross. That's how we go from spiritual death to spiritual life. In Christ, through the cross, we become united with God. We were once dead to him, separated, alienated from him. Does that make sense to you? If it doesn't, study it more. Keep working on it, okay? These are important doctrines. So, I said all that to simply make the case that the concept of death in the Bible primarily means separation. You ready? Now that we've done that work, let's let's look at the verse again. So we died to sin. We died to sin. According to Romans 6.2, we died to sin. According to the way we should understand death and how it's portrayed in the Bible as separation, I believe you can rightly understand that to mean then that in some sense, we'll talk about this, in some sense, Christians have been separated from sin. Are you with me so far? Christians have been separated from sin. But in what sense? (laughs) Because we know we still sin. So in what sense are we separated from it? Okay. The context, the rest of the passage, helps us understand the answer to that question. But I'm just going to give you the answer right up front, and then we're going to look at the other passages very quickly. The Christian has been separated from sin's enslaving power from sin's oppressive rule or reign over them. Now let's look at the context, and I believe now that you understand that, you understand 6.2, death, sin, we died to it. What does that mean? Now let's look at the context and watch it all come together. Romans 6, verses 6 through 7, Paul says, we know that our old self was crucified. We died. We're going to get to this, by the way. Because how is it that we died to sin? We're going to get to this. We died with sin with Christ. In Christ, we were crucified with him. His death was our death. So we know that our old self, our old man, our old messed up person was crucified with him in order that the body of sin, we're going to talk about these terms, might be brought to nothing. What does that mean, brought to nothing? You could translate that, that Greek there, rendered powerless, rendered powerless and here's the statement so that this is why this all happened for us we would no longer be enslaved to sin for one who has died has been set free from sin free from its enslaving power and control watch the next passage in verse 14 just skip down let your eyes go down paul says for sin will have no dominion dominion what is that dominion ruling power Ruling authority, ruling control. It will have none of that over you. You, you could literally translate this or s- that sin will no longer have lordship over you. One translation comes close to that. It's the New American Standard Bible. It says, for sin shall not be master over you. You understand that kind of phraseology? Master, right? But sin will no longer be master over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Then Romans 6, 17, 18, but thanks be to God, but thanks be to God. He's given praise that you who were once, what's he talking about? In the past, this is what you were before you put your faith in Christ, before you became a bona fide, genuine believer and follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. You once were slaves of sin, but you have become, this is what you are now. He says, obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. We'll look at that in detail. Just stay with me. Verse 18, and having been, what? Set free from sin. Not, you will be one day. You have been, having been set from, free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. Oh, glory to God. Okay, now listen. Romans six twenty two. One more. But now that you have been, again, all in the context, set free from sin, it's a stated fact. Now that you have been, guess what? You have become, what does it say? Oh, boy, I can't wait to get there. (laughs) The fruit, and look, the fruit you get from what has happened leads to sanctification, And its end, eternal life. One preacher put it like this concerning what it means that we have died to sin. He simply says this. We are no longer under the governing power of sin. Sin no longer controls us. Sin no longer controls our destiny. Right? All those things are true. We've been set free from sin. Not only its penalty, but its power. We've been removed from its domain, from its dominion. We've been released. We've been put under, I'll get to that in a second, someone else's dominion. Beloved, I want to, and I think this is, yeah, this is where I'm going to say it. So, see, I just jumped ahead of myself because it's important. And we'll come back to this. But just because the Christian, for the Christian, sin is no longer their master, just because that is, that's true. Listen to me, that's true. Just because that's true doesn't mean that they don't have a master. It doesn't mean they don't have a master. What is true of every Christian is that God has become their master. And in Christ, they have been separated from the enslaving power of sin and now placed under the rule and reign of God's transforming power and grace. This is what I've been talking about. You know that grace that saves? It transforms. God's grace. That's what we're under now. God's grace. One writer says this, I like this. You know, because we're big on freedom, right? Because we're in the US of A. Right? Freedom, baby. But listen, I'm a big, I'm a big freedom component as well. I mean a component. Proponent. I'm an advocate of freedom, all right? But listen to what he says. There is no such thing as human autonomy. This is like absolute freedom or a freedom from all outside powers and influences. There is no such thing. Either people are under the power of sin or they are under the power of God, period. And if your life doesn't reflect that you're under the power of God, then why do you think you are? Why do you think you're a Christian? If it still demonstrates clearly that you're under the power of sin, then stop saying you're a Christian. And become one. While our old master was committed to our destruction, our new master is committed to our full and complete sanctification. Philippians 1.6, you can look it up later. By the way, beloved, do you know what God's declared will is for every Christian? Do you know what it is? Do you know what it clearly is? It is for them to look like his Son for them to be conformed to his likeness. So if you're out there wondering what God's great plan is for you, wonder no longer. Here it is. Christ likeness. Christ likeness. That is God's great plan for your life. What is God going to do with me? What's he going to do? Is he going to make me a star? Is he going to... Maybe I, he may do those things, I don't know, but let's focus on one we can be very, very sure about. It is your transformation into the image of Jesus Christ. That is what he is intending to do with you. That is what he's working on. Why don't you get busy and work on it with him? Since that is is his goal for your life. You see what I'm saying? Do you? Okay. So listen, in his book, uh, The Disciplines of Grace, I'm going to have. I know I'm over time, but you know. The Disciplines of Grace. This is another great book. My brother and I have been going through this. We need to get back because we haven't got... Yes. Is it a great book, brother? Yes. They can't hear this. You know what I'm saying? They can't (laughs) (laughs) hear. The Discipline of Grace. God's role and our role in the pursuit of holiness is by Jerry Bridges, they actually have a workbook that goes with this. I highly, highly recommend this book. You could get it and just begin to go through it yourself. You want to find another brother or sister in Christ to go through it with? I would highly recommend that. Just start working through it. Get the workbook. But um, on the back... By the way, chapter 4, he has a whole chapter called We Died to Sin. It's Romans 6 because it's so critical to our to the process of our sanctification. And Jerry does a, a better job uh, than I do in these things, but... I would invite you to to read it. You'll see similar, we're saying the similar things. On the back it says, we know we need God's grace. Without it, we'd never come to Christ in the first place, right? But being a Christian is more than just coming to Christ. It's about growing and becoming more like Jesus. It's about pursuing holiness. And then he says, if you've ever struggled with what your role is and 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 what role God takes in your growth as a Christian, this book will comfort and challenge you as you learn to rest in Christ while vigorously pursuing a life of holiness. It's the disciplines of grace. It's a fantastic piece, but let me say one more thing. and I'm almost done now. Maybe you're thinking to yourself, Jeremy, I still feel like sin controls me, that I'm under its enslaving power. And you're just sitting here, you listen to all this, and you go, man, I don't know. I don't, I would say that if you're not a Christian, then that feeling you have about your sin is accurate. Meaning that it's based on reality. You are still enslaved to sin, and the only way you'll ever break free from it is to come to Christ. Did you hear me? Christ, and when Christ sets us free, it's, you start to understand what he sets us free from, then the statement becomes more meaningful. He doesn't just set me free so I don't have to go to hell. He certainly Glory to God! He does that. He sets me free from sin. Sin is destructive. It's corrosive. It ruins me. It takes away my satisfaction, my joy. But I want to say something else. If you are a Christian and you're maybe feeling that, hey, I, uh, Pastor, I don't feel, I don't feel dead to sin, man. If you are a Christian, then that feeling you have is only that. It's a feeling. It is a lie that you have believed to be true. Maybe no one told you differently. And now we come to the Scriptures and your mind is being transformed. Maybe you thought sin was still your master. But now we come to the Scriptures and your minds are transformed. What do you got to do, beloved? You got to believe what the word of God says. You know what sin's going to keep telling you? I'm your master. Shut up. You do what I say, I own you. Huh? Hey, listen, even as a Christian, I hear that lie. I've heard that lie. So I have to take the word of God and I have to say, that's a lie. You don't own me anymore. I've been set free. Beloved, listen listen carefully to me. Do not base your Christianity on your feelings. Don't do it. There have been days <laughs> that I felt like God didn't love me. Or care about me. I felt that. Right? Have any of you felt that? You don't have to raise your hand. But do you know, do you, can you relate to this? I felt abandoned. But my feelings didn't make that true. My feelings didn't make that true. Rather, all they did was make me miserable. Because I believed the lie. Our hearts are deceptive. Feelings are a roller coaster. You base your Christianity on your feelings, watch out, man. You're going to have a nightmare of a ride. You base your Christianity on the truth of God's word. You place your faith in that. You trust in that. You believe what it says. You have died to sin. If you are a Christian, you have been separated from its enslaving power. So by faith, you must believe that now and act accordingly. That's that, that's the message. That's the core of this message. Can I show you something? I know we're out of time. I get that, but I want to just, I want to read this to you. Just flip back. Romans chapter four in verse 18. Some of you already closed your Bibles. That's okay. Romans 4, 18. Ah. Do you remember Abraham? Remember we spent that whole chapter talking about Abraham. Abraham's this man of faith, man. Man of faith. He's he's an example of what it means to have faith in God and God's word, God's promises, what God says. And he says in verse 18, Paul's talking about him. Do you remember that promise he made to Abraham? Hey, Abraham, you're going to be the father of a great nation. I know you're way past the age of having kids. Your wife is barren. She's way too old. I know. I'm going to make you a great nation. Verse 18. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. Remember that promise? Look up into the heavens. Do you see the stars? Can you number them? That's what your descendants shall be. I don't even, God, how can that be? Trust me. Believe me. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which is good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, that's his wife. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith, and he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Okay, now listen. He was fully convinced that God was able to do what he, he promised, and he did. And you know what we need to be? Fully convinced that God has done what he said. In Christ, we have been separated from sin. We're dead to it. Its enslaving power has been destroyed. Now you have to believe it. That's the Christian life, beloved. It's a life of faith from beginning to end. It is a life of faith until one day our faith becomes sight. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for it. I thank you for the blessing of it. Lord, just work in us this coming week, these weeks ahead. I trust that we'll come back to this passage, we'll read it and reread it again and and think about some of these things. Maybe this is the first time for some here that they're hearing such things. Or maybe they've heard it, but they like everything in the Word of God, we need to hear it again and again and again. We need to saturate our minds with the wondrous truth, the saving, the sanctifying, the, the freeing truth of Your Word. Father, thank You for it. And may this week... May we begin to act according to what is true. Sin comes to us. Sin knocks on our door. Sin says, I'm here. You got to open. We say, no, I don't. You're not my master any longer. I'm under a new master. Make your way off my property. Father, help us to do that. Help us to work through that. As the temptation of sin comes, we don't have to do it. And yet, Lord, we know, we know that still, still, we succumb. We still succumb. And when that happens, may we repent, truly repent. Not just say, ah, it's okay, it's okay. Repent. Turn from it. Confess it before you. Find forgiveness in Christ. Be thankful for that forgiveness. And then walk away from that sin and walk into righteousness through the power of the Holy Spirit that dwells in every single one of us who are your children. Thank you, Father, for the work that you have started. Thank you, Father, for the work that you are doing. And thank you for the work, Father, that you are going to complete in the age to come. Father, help us to be serious about joining you in this great sanctifying work. It is in Christ's name we pray. Amen.